0: Biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Kupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I know that uh, my voice is not fully recovered, even though I'm feeling fine. So if I don't sound quite right, it's because I'm still waiting for my voice to come back, and we will see how long that takes. But until then, we will continue. And so today I wanted to begin a new series of episodes on the topic of tyranny and totalitarianism. But before we do that, I'd like to go through our passage of the day. So, today's passage is from Genesis chapter 4, 17 through 24. And here's what it reads from the ESV. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Then Lamech's is 77 fold. So, in this passage, we see a description of Cain's descendants down to Lamech. And Lamech appears to be unique in this book in that it seems like he is the first uh, person mentioned to have more than one wife. Um, I can't necessarily prove that explicitly, but the text goes out of the way to mention that he took two wives for himself. So there's no real reason to bring that up unless there's something special about that happening. So it only took a few generations, it seems, before uh, one man decided that he would rather have more than one wife. He then goes on and he boasts to his wives. Uh, that that section in verse 23 and 24 is a poem of a sort. And so Lamech brings up his wives and says, here, listen to me. Listen to what I have to say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So he's boasting that he is particularly a ruthless man, that somebody hit him, and so he killed them. He then claims that his vengeance or his mark is going to be greater than that of Cain's. Whereas Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is 77fold. Now, why is that important? Well, in Genesis 4, earlier, Cain was marked so that no one would get revenge on him for when he killed his brother Abel. So if you recall, Cain murdered his brother, and then God cursed Cain, uh, and Cain said that his punishment was too much to bear, and that when anyone sees him or comes across him they will kill him and god says no i'm going to put a mark on you so that if anyone gets revenge on you killing you it will be returned to him sevenfold now presumably that's from god god is the one that would punish someone for getting revenge on on cain and we could spend a lot of time talking about why that is the case, but it does seem like God has not yet established the um, civil government to bear the sword, to to exercise capital punishment. That'll happen under the Noahic covenant. But here, Lamech is taking upon himself divine authority. So, whereas God is the one who will avenge Cain sevenfold, Lamech says, He's going to avenge himself, 77-fold. Lamech is going to be more ruthless than anyone. God marked Cain so that bloodshed would be prevented, so that the cycle of violence would not continue, that mankind would fear God, and because of that, not kill Cain. Lamech essentially marks himself to make everyone fear him, not God. That if anyone crosses him, he will avenge 77 times upon that person. So, this very interesting poem, it seems to be the earliest indication of what I would describe as the first tyrant in history. He has the accumulation of wives and power. Later on, God's going to warn Israel and their kings not to take upon themselves, too many wives, and too much silver, and too many soldiers and horses, too much power. Lamech is ruthless in the enforcement of his own rules. He's not interested in obeying God's rules. He's interested in enforcing his own rules, and he makes this known publicly and communicates it publicly to others, Uh, initially to his wives, but through some kind of... um, Poem, that was communicated to other people, that everyone should know. Lamech's vengeance is seventy-seven. So, with that context in mind, how might it apply? Well, it clearly demonstrates that the cycle of of vengeance and sin is never-ending. It's a downward spiral to death. That humans have a tendency to take revenge above and beyond. Um, what the person did to them. So you take out someone's leg and they kill you. Or, you know, you kill someone and somebody else kills your whole family. It's this tit for tat, um, everyone trying to one up the other person, spiraling out of control. And what's interesting about that is that in God's law, The reason why God said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, is to prevent that from happening. That all punishments had to fit the crime. And that you do not over-punish someone out of a sense of vengeance. And to to do that is an indication that you view yourself as more important than you should. God is the one that determines punishments, and for a person to say, "No, uh, the, uh, my enemy deserves," or this person deserves a enormous punishment for what they did to me, is essentially to overvalue yourself and to be prideful, and to suggest that you're more valuable than than you really are supposed to be because you know when someone crosses you they deserve uh 77 times the amount that was done to you and that's really an attempt at self uh, deification making oneself a god and taking upon yourself um divine authority and and divine power so that is our law of the day and it ties into the topic that I want to begin covering. I don't know how many episodes this topic will cover, but we'll just see where it goes. So, kind of to introduce this topic, I I've begun to ask and, and think about how we as a society have come to where we are. You know, why do we see the government have its hand in so many things? So much money, so many taxes, so many rules and regulations. Um, authority to mandate vaccines and and masking and all the things that they are trying to do, uh, dealing with, with hate speech and trying to get to the heart of a person's sin, uh, trying to read minds and read hearts and to bring about perfect justice. And then thinking about why are certain things wrong and why are certain laws inappropriate? Or um, what does a tyrant look like? What is tyranny? What does that mean when we say that, right? If I had to summarize it in the shortest possible uh, definition, it would be the abuse of power. And it's capable of being done by anyone. Anyone can be a tyrant. It can be in the family, in the church, in business, and in Force government more specifically, it's the violation of boundaries and usually a repeated and deliberate violation of boundaries and it's the use of coercion to make someone do something that you don't have any business making them do so it's a it's a it's either the use of excessive coercion you know that's seventy seven times um value excessive force or uh, trying to conform people or coerce people in areas that should not be coerced. That is not your business to coerce them. That's the crossing of the boundary. But when we speak of boundaries and excessive, when we use that, that terminology, the implication is that there's a standard, an indication that there's a certain amount of coercion that someone should use, and there's a certain area in which they should use it, okay? And, of course, in our culture today, in the West, there's two extremes. You have, on the one side, the libertarian, who believes that nearly every act of government is tyrannical, that there essentially either should not be a government, or they should do so little that they practically don't exist. And on the other end, you have what would I might call a statist who would view um, nothing as tyrannical, that as long as there is a good reason to do it, the government should do it. Um, You know, the ends justify the means. It's got a good purpose. They got the power. They should do it. Nothing is outside of the boundaries. And nothing is excessive if it gets the results that we're looking for. That would be a statist Uh, mentality now there seems to be two broad categories of tyranny because typically when we think of a tyrant we think of a a male figure full of rage and anger someone like you know Thanos from the Marvel comic book universe with his clenched fist um, anger on his face and he's just He's this huge, uh, muscular, and uh, vicious character. But there's two broad categories of tyranny, and we might call them patriarchal and matriarchal. Because we see this first, tyranny, we see tyranny first take place in the family before there was government. And family is the first real authority. So it could be a husband or a wife that is acting with excessive coercion or acting outside of the established boundaries. And of course, children are particularly vulnerable to the authority of parents. So that's why I think patriarchal and matriarchal are fitting uh, categories to understand tyranny. And even though it overlaps, they overlap in their certain qualities, there are some differences. So let me give you an example of the patriarchal tyrant. Again, I mentioned a pop culture reference to Thanos. But you also have someone like a Hitler shouting, slamming his fist into the podium, or a Stalin. And a common theme among them, among patriarchal tyrants, is a vision of the world. A way that they want the world to look. A mission, if you would. And they view themselves as the champion of that mission. And a simple reading and research into these tyrants will clearly uh, show that. For example, Hitler made it very clear in his own writings that he had a vision, a dream of a greater Germany at the head of all nations, um, unified among language and blood, ethnicity, where all Germans would come together back to the fatherland and be united in one common goal. And this was the vision that he had, a purity, if you will, a purity of the German nation and the German people, which, of course, leads to his obsession with purging Germany of Jews. And that's what made it racist race focused um stalin had his own vision of a communist utopia and mao zedong other dictators tyrants do the same thing going back into pop culture um thanos was the same way if you read the comic books or or if you watch the Avengers movies he sees the world the universe if you would the whole universe as there's too many people none of resources it's too overpopulated and if he doesn't do something about it um it's going to all collapse so his goal is to accumulate enough power and essentially eradicate half of all people in every planet, across the entire universe, at random, so random, randomly execute half the population everywhere, and by doing so, it's kind of like hitting a gigantic reset button for the universe, and that's his vision of this utopia, and that when that happens, he there will, there will finally be peace and joy and rest in the universe so it's a vision the desire for power in order to get things done you see this in star wars other uh, popular culture and media it's always this common theme now to the patriarchal tyrant obstacles must either conform or be removed so those who resist are hindering the mission They're preventing the dream from being achieved. They're standing in the way. And the dream is some sort of order. So they do see chaos, and they're trying to build an order based on their worldview. And this order is always under the threat of some danger. Now, this was very common amongst the communists. Under the Soviet Union, there were always the counter-revolutionaries. They were always there always seeking to undermine the Marxist utopia and and the revolution. And these these anti- or counter-revolutionaries trying to bring back the old ways or not conforming to the new ones, they had to be found and purged and destroyed. So the image of the patriarchal tyrant is of the commanding and demanding father, treating everyone like just a giant cog in a machine, very cold and very uncaring. It's about the mission. It's about the system. Now, moving on to the matriarchal tyrant, that's less of a common image, but it is actually quite common in popular culture. So, for example, you have the Queen of the Borg in Star Trek, She's the one that proclaims herself as bringing order to chaos. And the reason that the Borg are trying to conquer all other races is always in their best interests. You know, we're conquering you to make you better uh, because it's for your good kind of idea. Or if anyone has watched the movie I, Robot with Will Smith taking place in the future where... Everyone has robots, and they're helping humans do everything. Um, The villain is an AI, artificial intelligence uh, computer, but um, it's 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 the personified as a woman, and her vision, what she's trying to accomplish, is protecting mankind. Everyone's locked down in their houses. Everyone has to follow strict rules. The robots are in charge. Nobody's allowed to make any decisions or do anything on their own because it causes danger for humans to do that. It creates danger. People could be hurt. Her job is to make sure everyone is safe. And in order to do that, she must have absolute control of everybody's life. So this uh, a vision of a tyrant, um, usually a very beautiful very regal, uh, seemingly a gentle spirit, right? You have the Snow Queen in *The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe*. Um, they don't look mean; they are seemingly loving and caring. Uh, you could even think of the uh, the villain in the movie *Tangled* or or in the *Rapunzel* movie, where she's a witch, but she's beautiful, but she will not let Rapunzel out of the tower because it's too dangerous out there. Now, it's not really because she cares about Rapunzel that she wants to keep her in the tower. It's really she's keeping Rapunzel for her own purposes. She needs Rapunzel for her own health, safety, and, and welfare. So it's, it's a very selfish thing. It's a smothering mother kind of uh, concept. So the common theme amongst the the matriarchal tyrant is not so much a vision of the world and a system that, that needs to be put in place, but a vision of people. It's about relationships, bringing everyone together into harmony, forcing everyone to love each other, forcing everyone to be in harmony and to love the queen. And everything is done in the name of the greater good for safety and for security, uh, we do it because we care that's essentially a bottom line of of that worldview It's done for the good of the victim, even if the victim is unaware of it or if the victim doesn't want it, it doesn't matter. Mother knows best this needs to be done for your good, whether kicking or screaming it's going to be done and Similarly, all obstacles need to conform or be removed. So opponents um, are preventing harmony, causing disruption, causing hurt, causing harm. These individuals are acting selfishly against the greater good. And they're acting recklessly because they're too independent. They're not thinking about the people. They're not loving everyone. So, um, this chaos that's being caused needs to be dealt with. Um, again, it's the smothering mother, the helicopter parent, everything done for the good of the child. Okay, so those are the two pictures of tyranny. So, like I said earlier in the passage of the day, we see that the the uh, Cain's descendant Lamech seems to be the first rise of the tyrant, the desire to take control and the wield power to put oneself in the place of God, to set the rules, to bring order to chaos. You have a plan, you have a dream, a vision. Those who submit will be blessed. Those who resist will be destroyed. And no mercy will be shown to them. It's an attempt to play God, to take upon divine authority. And I want to finish this episode just looking at some of the early pagan rulers that modeled this. And and we do see this in the Babylonian kings and the Egyptian pharaohs. So to give an example, uh, the pharaohs of Egypt were viewed as divine. It was through the pharaoh that divine power flowed to the people. And his duty was to maintain civilization and to wield absolute power on earth as a divine being himself the son of Ra, Um, and the Pharaoh has power over life, justice, fertility, and the afterlife. We see a similar pattern of divine and absolute authority amongst the Babylonians, and a good example of this is found in Hammurabi's law code. Uh, Now, I encourage you to read that code, and there are uh, some significant differences between that law code and the law given to Israel but I want to draw your attention to the epilogue of the law code. and what You'll see in this epilogue, there'll be some aspects of kingship and authority that are good or that should be there, but it's very much um, an idolatrous divine kind of language, um, absolute power kind of language. So, I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs here. All right. This is the epilogue of Hammurabi's law code. Laws of justice, which Hammurabi, the wise king, established, a righteous law and pious statute, did he teach the land. Hammurabi, the protecting king, am I. I have not withdrawn myself from the men whom Bel gave to me, the rule over whom Marduk gave to me. I was not negligent, but I made them a peaceful abiding place. I expounded all great difficulties. I made the light shine upon them. With the mighty weapons which Zamama and Ishtar entrusted to me, and the keen vision with which Ea endowed me, with the wisdom that Marduk gave me, I have uprooted the enemy above and below, subdued the earth, brought prosperity to the land, guaranteed security to the inhabitants in their homes. A disturber was not permitted. The great gods have called me, I am the salvation-bearing shepherd, whose staff is straight, the good shadow that is spread over my city. On my breast I cherish the inhabitants of the land of Sumer and Akkad. In my shelter I have let them repose in peace. In my deep wisdom have I enclosed them, that the strong might not injure the weak, in order to protect the widows and orphans. I have in Babylon the city where Anu and Bel raise high their head, In Esagol, the temple, whose foundations stand firm as heaven and earth, in order to bespeak justice in the land, to settle all disputes and heal all injuries, set up these my precious words, written upon my memorial stone, before the image of me as king of righteousness. The king who ruleth among the kings of the cities am I. My words are well considered. There is no wisdom like unto mine. By the command of Shamash, the great judge of heaven and earth, Let righteousness go forth in the land by the order of Marduk, my lord. Let no destruction befall my monument. In Esagil, which I love, let my name be ever repeated. Let the oppressed who has a case at law come and stand before this my image as king of righteousness. Let him read the inscription and understand my precious words. The inscription will explain his case to him. He will find out what is just, and his heart will be glad. So, this, you know, we see, yeah, that's, it's good to have justice in the land and take care of widows and orphans. That's very true. That's exactly what, you know, people should be doing. Um, it all sounds lovely, but, but you see that there's this concept of self-deification here where he is the, say this, the, the saving shepherd. He is the healer of all. Um, and this divine authority, really, um, we see in Scripture, is attributable only to God himself, only to Christ the Messiah as King of kings and Lord of lords to heal the nations. So this is what, we, what I think we see as the beginning of the rise of, of tyrants in the ancient world who acclaim to themselves divine authority and divine power, beyond that which they should be doing and by wielding absolute power they they use excessive coercion they cross lines that have been established and they abuse their authority as tyrants so we'll stop there for today and we'll see what we get to uh, next time i thank you for tuning into today's episode if you have any questions or comments or other related topics you would like me to address please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com and I hope that I will see you again next time so until then, take care and